Welcome to a special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast on 100 years of religious broadcasting. No, wait, if you're not a faithful, there is plenty here of historical note and some cracking tales to tell. I think you'll enjoy it. And if you are someone who knows their pause for thought from Thought for the Day, then I know you'll enjoy a whiz through 100 years of broadcast blessings. We will have some very rare clips. And some of the things we've unearthed are, I think, brand new and quite exciting. Well, I say new, um, old. Journeying with us, plenty of insight from a trio of guests, Dr. Ian Robertson, Dr. Martin Cooper, and non-doctor Michael Wakelin. Three wise men will bring us three gifts to inform, educate, and entertain on a century of God on the Air, here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London College. Hello, hello, hallelujah. Yes, indeed. Hello, I'm Paul Carenza. One last centenary special from the British Broadcasting Century, and do we anchor ourselves back in February of 1923? I hope you enjoyed the 100 Years and 100 Minutes specials. I certainly had a blast making them, although it was a long blast, and it took most of December to make those podcasts for you. Thank you to our 130-ish contributors to that centenary special, many of whom have longer interviews yet to come on the podcast. Coming soon, Rita Chakrabarti, Geoffrey Holland, Johnny Beerling, and many, many more. We've got a backlog of guests, in fact. So this episode, let's have three. Three wise men on the history of religious broadcasting. We've got Dr. Ian Robertson coming up. He's author of With God on Our Side, a comparative study of religious broadcasting in the USA and the UK. That was a book out last year. I went to the book launch in the Dick Shepherd Chapel, and the relevance of that name will become clear in about eight minutes' time. Michael Wakelin, a former BBC head of religion, he joins us as well. He's executive producer at TBI Media, and he's executive chair of the Religion Media Centre, and a producer of countless religious programmes throughout the decades. We'll also have Dr. Martin Cooper towards the end, author of Radio's Legacy in Popular Culture, The Sounds of British Broadcasting Over the Decades. This podcast has nothing to do with the BBC themselves. We're talking about them and not necessarily with their blessing, to use an appropriate term. But contrary to some historical accounts, Auntie Beeb was not the first to broadcast religion in this country. We will get to that, but let's begin with the genesis of it all, beyond Britain, across the Atlantic, not a century ago, but 116 years ago, in 1906. <laughs> In the beginning, the ether was silent, and a Canadian said, Let there be music. Yes, the world's first religious broadcast was in fact the world's first entertainment broadcast as well. Pretty much the world's first broadcast. Christmas Eve, 1906. Reginald Fessenden read from Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest. And he sang and played O Holy Night on the violin. Well, it was Christmas. He's an engineer, a producer, a presenter. Fessenden was a one-man broadcast station. It paves the way for creative, pioneering individuals, not organisations, looking forward and upwards throughout the next hundred and a bit years. Delighted to welcome to the podcast Ian Robertson, a journalist, a broadcaster and a writer of a fine book which I have in my hands here with God on our side, a comparative study of religious broadcasting in the USA and the UK, 1921 to 1995, the impact of personality. And this podcast, we love early broadcasting. America always seemed to get there a bit earlier than Britain in every broadcasting history landmark. And this is no exception, is it? Uh, No, it's not. And uh, obviously, if you're going to start at the beginning, you're going to have to start with the American uh, situation. The model of broadcasting generally, uh, but certainly with religious broadcasting, really evolved in a very, very different context in America compared with Britain. Uh, But there were some commonalities Uh, And so I found that really intriguing, and that's how the book pans out. 
January the 2nd, 1921, it was a Westinghouse electric company engineer who got the world's first radio station, KDKA Pittsburgh, to air the world's first religious service. This was from Calvary Episcopal Church, where this engineer was in fact in the choir. All of the Westinghouse engineers that he drafted in actually dressed in choir robes, even the Jewish and Catholic technicians, so they would all blend in, you see, for the broadcast service. It's important because it had to be discreet, like the hidden microphone in the pulpit. Here's Thomas Coakley writing in the Catholic Herald a year later, January 1922. The installation itself is practically invisible. It is not apparent to those in church unless attention is especially directed to it, being no more than a very small transmitter, about the size of a mouthpiece of the modern telephone, suspended from the small lamp used to light the reading desk of the pulpit. Hence, there is nothing spectacular or worldly about it. This is mentioned to forestall any objection upon the part of the devout, the ultra-rubrical, or the meticulous that the pulpit is being used for something savouring of the theatrical. Now, not everyone was behind it. Now, the senior minister of that church refused to preach, and he was rather sceptical of broadcasting, you see. He left it to his junior pastor, Reverend Lewis B. Whitmore, to make history as the world's first radio reverend. The church continued to broadcast throughout that year, reaching at least 20 states. One droll listener in Detroit heard everything except the passing of the collection plate, and he sent in his contribution by mail. Now, at that point in Britain, thanks to the UK government ban on broadcasting, we were just about to get going via those Marconi experimental broadcasts. See the previous 60-odd episodes of this podcast for details of those, of course. Broadcasting boom taking hold, there were Marconi demonstrations at places including Peckham Town Hall in June of 1922. Now, one attendee was local preacher Dr James Ebenezer Boone. And it's Dr. Boone, not the BBC, that gives us Britain's first religious broadcast. I have preached the gospel by wireless to the most unique congregation ever man had. Sunday the 30th of July 1922 marks the first step in what could very easily be one of the greatest moves of gospel propagation. We actually have Dr. Boone's account of events, and thanks to Andy Mabbott of Wikisource for transcribing that, and thanks to Dr. Jim Harris, the art historian, and my fellow Pauls for Thoughter, whose well-timed bike ride passed a plaque in Peckham that tipped me off about this tale. You see, Dr. Boone had heard the experimental concerts from The Hague, and he thought, yes, I can do that in my church. Well, I go elsewhere. It seems to me that no time should be lost. The church should strike out now and at once. If not, a chance will be allowed to pass by and pass never to return. From the Daily Telegraph. A temporary wireless aerial constructed by means of clothes props on the roof of a London church last night received what was stated to be the first broadcast sermon. Preacher in Blackheath, his congregation five miles away in Peckham, but beyond the church walls, it reached homes in Watford. Last night I happened, quite by chance, to be tuning in on my one-valve wireless set when I was amazed to hear the strains of Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. Godalming in Surrey. I shall be glad to know if there will be another broadcast sermon next Sunday. And among other places, Eltham. The address given in such a manner enabled me to concentrate on it much better than in a building. We'll leave Dr Boone there for now, but I'm thinking of doing this year's Christmas special, which will be a while away yet, all about this very first religious broadcast in Britain. So we'll revisit him then. And it'd be nice maybe to do a full reconstruction. And I'm also looking to perform it on stage or in pulpit in a church or an art centre, anywhere really, over the course of this year. So if you would like the first religious broadcast, a reenactment at your place, do email me, paul at paulcarenza.com, for more info on booking that. And yes, let's gather live once again as we did last year. This time to hear Britain's first broadcast sermon and its amazing tale. You can also email me, paul at paulcrenza.com, with any feedback, comments, or hellos indeed for the podcast.
Our final word from Dr. Boone, our first religious broadcaster. It does not matter a brass farthing to me whether I preach a sermon by wireless again or not. That is the merest detail. All my aim is that one sermon, at least, should go out each Sunday by wireless. And, of course, John Reith was the man to give that to him. Before John Reith landed his BBC job, when he arrived in London looking for work, he went straight to church, and he heard the minister read Ezekiel 22.30. And I sought for a man among them that should stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Yes, thought Reith, I am that man who will stand in the gap for the land. I just need something to lead. He was a, a great personality that was to kickstart a number of activities and religious broadcasting was certainly one of them. It was very much at his heart. He believed that Britain should have religious broadcasting, that that would make an impact on the social structure of the nation. So yes, there was a gap from July to December 1922 with no known religious broadcasts in Britain. Although I wouldn't be surprised if a few low-powered radio hams did put out a hymn or two, maybe even their own thought for the day. We will never fully know what filled the ether in those early days. So that means that the next stop on this tour through religious broadcasting's first century is indeed the BBC. It is too early calling. Christmas Eve, Reverend John Mayer, 1922. Surely no man has ever proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit as I am now occupying. Apart from Dr Boone and Reverend Lewis Whittemore and Reginald Fest. And then a week later, Reith's first instruction to his director of programmes, Arthur Burroughs, was to hire a preacher. Reverend Archibald Fleming, DD, of St Columba's Church of Scotland, Pond Street, is going to give the first broadcast New Year's Eve address. To be the last in the year 1922 to speak to you, is a responsibility before which the most confident might quake. Reith started to look for people that really would carry the message that he wanted to see over the airwaves of the BBC. He'd hear someone speak and book them for the radio. In January 1923, travelling evangelist Gypsy Smith. Later that year, there was Dr F.W. Norwood of the City Temple, Catholic speakers including Father H. Vaughan, and war padres like Woodbine Willie and Tubby Clayton. Speaking here on the BBC 20 years later. Christian religion, a faith not only for Sundays, uh, but for every working day of the week. Back in 1923, the first broadcast from a church was not a service, but a concert. Bach's St Matthew Passion from St Michael's Cornhill. Later that year, the first outside broadcast from a cathedral was Westminster Cathedral, an organ recital. But some church broadcasts were banned. When Reith asked for permission to broadcast the 1923 royal wedding, that's between the future George VI and the future Queen Mum, it was the church, that's the dean and chapter of Westminster, who said no, not the royals. You see, it may be listened to in an irreverent manner and might even be heard by persons in public houses with their hats on. Actual quote. Reith invited the Archbishop of Canterbury to dinner and demonstrated radio's potential. The Archbishop was amazed when Reith phoned the BBC to say that he didn't like the music being played and could they have some Schubert instead. The band instantly obeyed. The Archbishop heard from this box in the corner and was astounded. The church establishment were being very slowly convinced. As for the first church service broadcast on the BBC, it required a lot more thought than Dr Boone's guerrilla-style DIY job of 1922. What flavour of service should be broadcast? Protestant or Catholic? Established or non-conformist? Cathedral or church or studio? 
Well, finally, St Martin's in the Fields was chosen because it was a church known for its charity and war work. It seemed accessible. It comes to us here not because we are more capable than other churches, but because St Martin in the Fields, from its position at the very heart of the empire, is of necessity known, at least by name, to countless people. Well, there in 1924, Reverend Dick Shepherd conducted the BBC's first broadcast service in this rare clip. On the second Sunday in each month, to be allowed to say prayers, to sing hymns, and to talk religion in the presence of any of you who are willing to listen. We counted a great happiness as well as a grave responsibility. Now, that's not a BBC recording, it's a gramophone recording. So I don't believe it's in their archives. But anyway, it was a hit. The following week, 8,000 prayer requests reached the BBC. Basically, they were talking about broadcasting being the annihilation of space. And of course, that's what he did. It, the space wasn't an issue. The fact that he could broadcast, yes, to thousands of people. But for him, it was still like talking to a person in their home, something that really was that intimate. Tonight we begin then the happy, if difficult, task of attempting to make contact with a great multitude of unseen people, which no man can number. So well loved, it seems, that when he died, I think you mentioned in the book, 100,000 people or so paid their tributes to him in passing, didn't they? Yeah, you know, we've just gone through this period of mourning in the loss of Her Majesty, and we saw all those crowds on the streets well, in a sense, it almost made me reflect back to what the appeal was of Dick Shepherd and how much he was loved and the fact that they would do a similar thing with somebody who was just a clergyman, but a clergyman that talked to thousands and thousands more people than he could get into St. Martin's in the fields. That same year, we had the first broadcast by the chief rabbi, Hertz, on October the 5th. 1924. And Rabbi Hertz's great-grandson still delivers Radio 2 Pause for Thoughts today, and his great-granddaughter is ITV's economics correspondent. They had this central broadcasting committee, which was nicknamed Crack, and they were obviously quite keen to have a certain level of control and influence about what should be on the airwaves. And also, because it was denominationally representative, it was to try and create a balance and, of course, that was important to the BBC. They didn't like extremists. They wanted something that was very much centred in the heart of the orthodox Christian tradition of this country. As for a daily service, well, that was down to a long campaign from a listener, Kathleen Cordeau, who wrote to Reith and the Radio Times asking for a daily even song of the air. Two years it took, but she kept on writing. The daily service resulted and it's now the longest running of its kind anywhere in the world i've even presented it myself but it began in a savoy hill studio with a roaring log fire we didn't have a log fire when i presented it still of course christianity was by far the dominant faith even to the point that as the bbc moved from savoy hill to broadcasting house in 1932 the entrance hall contained a sculpture of the biblical sower from the parable perhaps the original broadcaster broadly casting seed above it as you walk in today you will see a latin inscription committing broadcasting house to god this temple of the arts and muses is dedicated to almighty god by the first governors of broadcasting it is their prayer that good seed sown may bring forth a good harvest that was a quote often favored by wreath dedicating the building to almighty god 
And these are the words which you well know, that it was the business of the first board of governors to see that the things that were broadcast over Great Britain were true and honest and just, pure and lovely and of good report. Upstairs at Broadcasting House, the Daily Service got its own studio, 3E. Broadcasters would face a lit alcove designed as an infinite space. It was actually nearly consecrated as a chapel, but the church establishment objected to its consecration on the grounds that the profane, in quotes, was directly underneath it. You see, there's a light entertainment studio and the gents' toilet. Not entirely sure which of those was classed as the most profane. A year after Broadcasting House opened, we have this clip from the very reverend Dr W.R. Ng, Dean of St Paul's Cathedral. Even to the woman taken in adultery, he said, Neither do I condemn thee, Although he added, go, sin, no more. And this was the year the BBC got its first director of religion, the brilliantly named Reverend F. Iremonger. Now, whether he was a monger of ire or fire is unclear. Either way, he seemed to do something right, because on his watch, it was the glory years, pun intended, of faith-filled content on the air. More religious programmes than dramas were, in fact, broadcast. Including this, in 1936, the BBC singers on the Daily Service, live from Studio 3E. Another favourite radio reverend was Reverend W. H. Eliot, heard here just before George V's coronation in 1937. Nobody can walk about London just now without thinking of the great event that is coming on the 12th of May. He was another favoured broadcaster of John Reith as well. The Reithianism, for some people in the BBC, was a bit of a hurdle. His version of, for example, A Good Sunday on the BBC was very different from a lot of people who came later. It was far too narrow, far too serious. And of course, people switched off from that as well. And therefore, there was a lot of competition from European stations people started going to listen to them instead of listening to the Rethian type Sunday. So eventually there was going to be some movement once he'd gone. Okay, so he then leaves in 38 and of course a year later we're at war. That I suppose again has its own huge mark on religious broadcasting. The war produced a challenge for the BBC anyway, uh, but the religious broadcasting was also a bit of a challenge because quite a lot of their religious broadcasters were also pacifists and some of them quite clearly spoke out against it and therefore they were worried about putting people on air like that because they wanted people to be thoroughly behind standing up against Hitler. In 1940s Blitz, a bomb destroyed that religious broadcasting studio 3E. The Daily Service went to Bristol, then Bedford, even broadcast from under a desk during one air raid. Wartime inspirational broadcasts included the start of the daily two-minute thoughts for the day from 1939, although then it was called Lift Up Your Hearts. C.S. Lewis's inspiring radio talks formed his acclaimed book, Mere Christianity. And another famous writer, Dorothy L. Sayers, better known for her cosy crime mysteries, she notably became the first to update Jesus's words into modern speech with her groundbreaking radio play, The Man Born to be King. I've got a copy here, in fact, and reading it, it does look very much out of its time. Highly informal, with scenes of the guards getting drunk and gambling, and feels a lot more like a Jimmy McGovern update than a wartime BBC broadcast. 
Meanwhile, in Manchester, Reverend Bramwell Evans became perhaps the most popular church minister in BBC history. He presented children's nature programmes under his pseudonym of Romany. The hedgehog. It isn't cold enough yet for him to hibernate, you know. But he is beginning to look round for a suitable place for his winter sleep. After Romany's death in 1943, his caravan remained near his Wilmslow home for many years to come so that fans could pay their respects. Further afield, international wartime broadcasts included carols from the desert in Tripoli with the 8th Army and announcer Godfrey Talbot. In a few days after the Christmas, these men of the 8th Army will be doing the job they're doing now, chasing after Rommel. No time for parties. The first couple of decades of the BBC, of course, had been almost entirely Anglo-Catholic religious broadcasts. Jewish broadcasters were generally confined to the variety department. But in the Second World War, of course, there were Jewish pleas for airtime to bolster their cause against the Nazis. These largely fell on deaf ears. The BBC accepted that, quote, Jews merited special sympathy at this present time. And there were some rare Jewish broadcasts, like the first service from the just-liberated Belsen concentration camp. This was broadcast on the BBC in April 1945. This is the Reverend Leslie Hardman, the Jewish chaplain to His Majesty's British Second Army, members of which liberated the Belsen concentration camp from which I am now speaking. Around me are hundreds of Jewish men and women who are about to partake in the first divine service since the last six years. But in the main, the official line was that allowing Jewish broadcasts would mean needing to allow Muslim, Hindu, Unitarian broadcasts. Where, the powers that be wondered, would you draw the line? More enlightened multi-faith times were yet to come. This is how gradual the process was. By the late 1950s, two Unitarian, four Quaker and two Yiddish broadcasts were allowed on the BBC each year. Let's race through some post-war religious broadcasting then. Christmas Day 1949 is the first TV broadcast of a church service from the Royal Hospital in Chelsea. But of course, it took something much grander to launch television to the world. That comes in 1953 via a church service. The Queen's coronation at Westminster Abbey breaks viewing records. Two years later, 1955, ITV launches. And a year after that, ITV started closing down on a Sunday with mini-sermons, little epilogues unique to each franchised region. Earlier, though, on Sunday evenings, it was broadcast silence in this era. This would encourage evening church attendance, so it was thought. So from 6.15 to 7.25, the BBC and ITV had to shut down completely. It was ITV that campaigned to overturn this ban because they noticed that viewers would switch off and not switch on again. Highly frustrating. The channels vowed to air that gap with faith-filled content, though, at this time. So a few years later, in 1961, you've got BBC television executive Donald Baverstock, who had gone to help Doctor Who, Emmerdale Farm and TV Darts reach their audiences. And Baverstock thought that to fill this religious broadcasting gap of a Sunday evening, the BBC could have some sing-along hymns, songs of praise. We decided to do a songs of praise from a football ground. Let's meet someone then who worked on that show later on, but also had a hand in so many religious documentaries over the last few decades. Because there's lots of links between football oh, yeah. and hymns. Former head of BBC Religion and Ethics. One nil, one nil is amazing grace, obviously. <laughs> Executive chair of the Religion Media Centre. Man United fans sing a song to the Lord of the 
Dance. And executive producer at TBI Media, Michael Wakelin. And, uh, you know, we'll support you ever more goes to Kunt yeah. Ronda from uh, Guide Me Out, Our Great Jehovah. Yeah. So anyway, at first we thought, well, we're going to fill a quadrant of Manchester United, just the corner. And even then, with 10,000 people, it would have been the biggest songs of praise ever. There was a waiting list of 10,000 for the whole ground. It's just phenomenal. On the actual day as assistant producer, I had to be standing with Pam Rhodes, who was, who was welcoming everyone. And we had this tight shot of her just standing in front of the Manchester United sign next to the dugout. She was saying, you know, people say that football and hymns don't mix well. <laughs> and then it was my, my cue was to cue the crowd to cheer. Right, and I, I I felt like I'd scored a goal. <laughs> I bet dramatic, and everyone cheered. <laughs> There's that that tale as well of how some of the early songs of praises. The locations were chosen based on where the football was played the day before. First one was in the OB trucks are in Cardiff or somewhere. Mm. They thought, well, we've got these vans here. Why don't we, you know, do something yeah. else? Football and religion, hand in hand. Back to the history then. As for those mini two-minute inspiratio bites, the light programme had a slot called 5 to 10 at 5 to 10. The home service had 10 to 8 at, you guessed it, 10 to 8. And 5 to 10 started, I think, on the 11th of December 1950. At least that's the first record of it. And it moved to Radio 2 when that launched in 67. And it became renamed, relaunched, rebranded as Pause for Thought from April the 6th, 1970. That's the same year Radio 4 launched Thought for the Day and the Sunday programme. I found myself producing Pause for Thought. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, literally no idea. <laughs> I sat there in this, I was given this office, and then there was this person in the office. I didn't know who it was. And I, someone said, Michael, it's your PA. I suddenly realised I had someone who was there to type <laughs> my letters and things. Now, Pause for Thought's first week on Radio 2 had unnamed contributors from different professions. So you'd have a doctor, a dustman, a businessman. Its second week had more famous speakers. Cliff Richard, Henry Cooper, Derek Nimmo, J.B. Priestley were all within the first few weeks. The seventh ever Pause for Thoughter was, brace yourself, Jimmy Savile. Now, I have a clip, but I think... No one wants to hear it. He yes. used to present um, Speakeasy on, on Radio 1. Mm. And my mum used to do broadcasting occasionally, Prep for the Day on Radio 4. While she was there one day recording her Prep for the Day, someone came in and said, oh, they want someone. They want a, someone religious on with Jimmy Savile. And mum had to go meet him. Oh, really? So really? she came out. Because at the time, obviously, he was very famous. We were all very starstruck by that. But yes, yeah, these, mm. these things are all part of the history too. Paul Simon was a pause for thoughter. And he was on a tour around England, you know, when he wrote some of his mm. famous songs, Homeward Bound, you know. I think the producer heard him at a folk club, so he was a folky, mm. somewhere in Suffolk. Right. And he thought, oh, yeah, this boy's got a bit of talent, you know, <laughs> would you come along and do some recordings for us? Right. And he came along and sang, uh, I think, five songs just with his guitar, which turned into Pause for Thoughts, or five to tens, as they were. Wow. And on the recording, you can hear the producer, because it was kind of recording the whole the cubicle as well as the studio, and you could hear the, the voice of Roy, I think it is, Roy Trevelyan, saying, uh, uh, Mr. Simon, could you do that again, please? It's like telling this <laughs> great singer he wasn't quite good enough. 1977's Annan Report requested more diversity in broadcast religion, and that paved the way for the multi-faith broadcasting that we see today. Less preaching, more discussion, fewer lecterns, more chairs facing each other in studios. Michael started out making all sorts of religious programmes for the BBC, and shifting attitudes meant these were less focused on replicating aspects of a church service and more focused on documentary. I worked on a big documentary series on Jesus with uh, Jeremy Bowen called Son of God, uh, it was a three-part series, went out on BBC One on Sunday evening. It was an absolute prime time slot. And we um, we got the Radio Times front cover, which was the big 
jewel to, to mm. aim for when you were at my stage in life. Because we were filming out in the desert in uh, near Jerusalem, and we had this anthropologist who suggested that we use a skull uh, from the first century, which he had found, and we built up the face of Jesus using the you know police forensic techniques. And that face, if you Google face of Jesus, it still comes up as pretty much the number oh, really? one search because it's a proper, authentic first century mm. <clears throat> man. Mm. Obviously, we gave him dark hair and dark skin. And for me, that's always it transformed my understanding of Jesus that actually, because suddenly he wasn't the blonde eyed, blue eyed classic Jesus or the one from all the you know fancy paintings. This was a real first century man. And back then they didn't move very much. They didn't intermarry very much. So it really is what Jesus may well have looked like. Mm. We didn't say it was Jesus, but of course the press all did. So we were on the, we were on the front page of the Times, the Telegraph. We were on page three of The Sun, little little right. picture of Jesus. Really? Looking rather, looking page, rather surprised. Page three? I'm surprised yeah. to be on page three, I'd have thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but wow. the main thing was the Radio Times front cover, yeah, and that was really amazing. exciting. So that was what gave me documentary work. I did a series with Janet Street, Porter on Cathedrals. and But then I was series producer of Songs of Praise, having mm. produced it for many years and directed it. And then from there, I became head of development and then head of religion. You know, obviously every man and heart of the matter were the big beasts of mm. factual religious programming, and both of them were were axed. And we were then in the business of having to sell program ideas to kind of slightly unwilling commissioners. And it was it was tough. We, we, we had some great success. We had some failures. And the next biggest shift, I think, was probably 1990's Broadcasting Act. Margaret Thatcher urged through this parliamentary act, and a side effect of it was that proselytising was banned, ITV's Godslot vanished, Harry Seacombe's Highway was one of the last standing, at the BBC, religion and ethics moved to Manchester in 1994, an unpopular choice at the time with staff. Although Manchester's a fantastic place, at the time it didn't feel very good for us, because we were, we were Londoners, really. And it did feel when I was head of religious broadcasting, I used to have this sensation that I was I was walking up an escalator coming down the other way. Right. But I've, I've changed my views quite a bit because, in a sense, it's more important for the BBC to cover religion very well across the piece and its journalism and its documentaries um, in all its programming, rather than have a kind of niche religious broadcasting department where unpopular mm. programmes are shoved and stuck out in the middle of the night much better for the BBC to be broadly religiously literate. The commercial door was now opened to religious broadcast stations. On this, time for our third wise man. And trust me, we will make up for it by having some guests who are very much wise women. Dr Martin Cooper, author of Radio's Legacy in Popular Culture. If you compare British radio to American radio, um, American radio has a tradition of the big preachers getting up there and, and preaching evangelism. We don't do that or we haven't done that we certainly haven't done that on the BBC. I know Billy Graham a couple of times has had some of his big events in the 1950s broadcast on the BBC. Let's ask God to breathe upon us in mighty power. But there's never been a regular evangelical programme uh, until, and this I think is, is interesting and significant, until the arrival of DAB and... Community Radio 2. Now, uh, 10, 11 years, Premier, UCB, have national coverage for Christian broadcasting. A lot of it is evangelical, although generally Premier and UCB um, do broadcast to Christian believers already. So it's their, I think they, they feel their mission is to reinforce the Christian mm. message rather than give the Christian message. Still, 
evangelical uh, messages are there. And then there's community radio stations. I'm involved in one in Dewsbury. I know there's other Christian stations right across the country. There are Muslim stations too, particularly during Ramadan and, and periods like that. So faith, I think, is a very important part of what radio does. A number of the, the big American preachers actually used pirate radio in the 1960s and the 70s to broadcast their programmes. In fact, Radio Caroline earned a little bit of money by overnight playing American evangelical programmes on its airwaves that the preachers paid for it so you know again it, it it's the big names like like oral roberts and so on that that were paying for this stuff that is how caroline got some of its money which i think is interesting as well we we know that the american preachers use things like uh, there's other stations around transworld radio um other ones i don't know if it's still broadcast but radio monte carlo i mean i remember that in the the 60s and the 70s uh, that you could just hear just pick up after dark the sound of American preachers. It's a different era in many ways, but it now is. we have we have so many opportunities now with DAB and internet radio and the like that uh, that you yeah. can get those sort of niche areas, I suppose. To the present day, 2020 saw a pandemic, of course. BBC Local Radio gave weekly half-hour Sunday services because church buildings were closed. And the churches themselves also entered the fray. They moved online 98 years earlier. You remember Dr Boone? He'd said that all churches could never be transmitting stations. Too many of them. But thousands of them sort of became just that as ministers became YouTubers, TikTokers and live streamers during lockdown. This was the exact opposite of Dr Boone's absent minister but present congregation, as you'd have the minister alone in church, the congregation locked down at home. Some, like Holy Trinity Brompton, were really of broadcast quality and they've kept those live streams going. But then again, we're all broadcasters now, aren't we? 2022, Elizabeth II's state funeral becomes the world's most watched television programme. And indeed, that is, once again, a church service. Thanks to broadcasting, the Archbishop of Canterbury's sermon becomes the most listened to sermon of all time. And the only one apparently listened to by over half the planet. Religious broadcasting now has a different audience and a different purpose, of course. The early BBC was the nation's minister, essentially, but now we have choice and channels. So I think those seeking religious programmes are more likely to be folks with a faith who are actively seeking them out rather than stumbling across them, as maybe some of us did growing up. You can't ignore religion. If you ignore it, it goes wrong and mm. Toxic vacuum creates and all sorts of awful things can happen. The Religion Media Centre is there to be a resource for journalists to help them cover religion. We're non-confessional. We don't promote religion. We don't say it's good or bad. We just say it matters. What we want is for religion to be given its proper place, given it's the highest editorial standards, and that the public are enabled to understand religion properly. That's what we want to happen. So I'm, I'm kind of firing on all cylinders to, to help that. Mm. And I think when we're there, then, you know, religion will become asset rather than liability, which it so often is. And the BBC has a crucial role to play in all that. I think it does it very well a lot of the time. But it also, you know, it does need to up its game as well. So, do, so does all journalism. But we're not there to criticise. It's, it's tough. It's a tough mm. subject. Mm. Religion's about nuance and subtlety and, and depth and theology, whereas news is so often about, you know, headlines and the, the, the most obvious facts they don't they don't go in for for depth and subtlety so anyway we're, we're there hopefully to to make the religion better covered but alongside that you know religion's full of great stories mm. and i think good documentary makers will want to make programs about religion because mm. it's 
about life transforming. It's about resurrection. It's about, you know, forgiveness and love and all the really big, deep subjects in the world. And I think there will be, always be people wanting to make programmes about that. It is my privilege, by the aid of the wizardry of Mr Marconi in this wonderful house, to speak, as I understand, to many thousands of people. Whether in the cathedral or the Doss House, I could at any rate see my audience. Here I cannot. A huge thanks to the marvellous 50 Years of Religious Broadcasting, edited by David Winter, a titan of religious broadcasting production, Kenneth Wolfe's The Churches and the British Broadcasting Corporation, 1922-56, and Melvin Dinwiddle's Religion by Radio. Thanks to all of our guests, Drs Ian Robertson and Martin Cooper, do buy their books. Links will be in the show notes. And thanks to Michael Wakelin, my boss at Pause for Thought. Oh yes, I'm still pausing for thought on Radio 2. I first paused under Chris Evans. I was Sarah Cox's last Pause for Thought, Zoe Ball's first Pause for Thought on her very first day. And I'll be back on the air doing that soon, squeezing some daily inspiration in between Dua Lipa and the travel. But back on this podcast. Next time, we're back into our timeline. February 1923, telling the tale of the BBC versus the press, a listings ban, and a little more on the first Welsh station and its launch from writer Gareth Gwynn. Stay tuned and stay subscribed. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Archive material is so old it's generally public domain, but BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Have you reserved yours? Don't forget we're on Twitter and Facebook and Patreon, where extra videos and writings await you, all yours for a few pounds a month to keep this project afloat. Stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time for the start of Season 5 as we head back exactly 100 years to February of 1923 on this British Broadcasting Century. Bless you for listening.